everybody. I am Marina Malaguti and I'm your host at Embossed. Embossed is a podcast I've created to highlight women with amazing paths of success here in Chicago. Last year, I set out to interview the only 40 female CTOs in the city. And this year, I've expanded to uh, female CEOs and women in politics and government in Chicago. I'm excited to share these interviews with you, and I hope you contact me at www.unbossed.io or email me at marina at unbossed.io. Hope to see you soon. Tracy Baim is co-publisher of the Chicago Reader newspaper. She is owner and co-founder of Windy City Times, a 35-year-old LGBTQ newspaper. She's the author or co-author of 12 books on LGBTQ history, including Out and Proud in Chicago, Obama and the Gays, and Gay Press, Gay Power. Producer of four films, creator of That's So Gay, LGBTQ trivia game, and a longtime journalist and organizer. Major events she has helped lead include Gay Games 7th in Chicago in 2006, and the March on Springfield for Marriage Equality. She founded the LGBT Chamber of Commerce of Illinois in 1996 and has won numerous awards for her journalism and activism, including the Studs Turker Award. Beam has been inducted into the National LGBT Journalists Association Hall of Fame, Association of Women Journalists Chicago Hall of Fame, and the Chicago LGBT Hall of Fame. She received a Lifetime of Achievement Award from the Society of Professional Journalists Chicago. Welcome, Tracy. Hey, everybody. This is your host, Marina at Unbossed. Um, My guest today is Tracy Bain. Uh, Tracy, is that how you say your last name, actually? Bain? Bain. Yeah, Aim with a B. (laughs) Bain. Let me redo that because I wanted to make sure I said that right. Hey, everybody, this is Marina, your podcast host at Unbossed. Um, My guest today is Tracy Bain, publisher at the Chicago Reader. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you for having me. Um, So I uh, am really excited to talk about you because I love to read. um, And you've been doing a a lot of cool projects. But before we jump into the meat of things, I want to know a story. Give give us some context about who Tracy is. Uh, Where did you grow up? Um, What was it like to be a girl? Um, And yeah, let's get to know each other a little bit. Excellent. Well, I'm I'm a native Chicagoan. And when when I say that, I say 99% of that time has been in the city of Chicago. I was born at Edgewater Hospital. My folks lived in Highland Park for the first five or six years of my life. When they got divorced, my mother moved back into Chicago. So most of my life I've been in Chicago and then I went away to college and came back. I can't think of a more perfect uh, name for a podcast for me than Unbossed because my entire life I have felt unbossed, partly intentionally on my part, but also because I didn't quite fit into the norms of of the profession I was in early on. So I knew I had to be my own boss because nobody would hire an openly queer journalist in the mainstream media um, at the time I was coming out college in 84. And I also had done my own family newsletter starting at age 10. I created a grammar school newsletter at Walt Disney <laughs> Grammar School. So my whole life has pretty much been unbossed and, and I'm not the best boss, but I'm really going to be unbossed. That's amazing. Um, I'm glad I'm glad you identify with the with the title. Uh, how did you 
become uh, or less of how like what made you become a writer in the first place you know i don't know whether it was genetics epigenetics uh nature nurture like i don't know what it was because i have a sibling i have two siblings a brother and a sister my brother is a writer only in the context of his profession which is psychodrama um and my sister's uh, a bookkeeper and and event planner and such my stepfather was a journalist at the chicago tribune for 29 years mm -hmm. up to nutrition editor and my mother was a journalist her whole life and until she passed away. So I had it in my environment and, and in my genes. And starting at age really eight or nine, I was extremely aware of the media. I did book reports in grammar school on the Vietnam War, on Vesco, on just this <laughs> stuff, on Helter Skelter book, which I don't know why I wasn't put in a timeout for writing about uh, Manson in grammar school. But um, so I always was a, just a voracious reader of media. Books I liked, but what I really loved was magazines and newspapers, really to an obsession. Obsession in my in one of the closets in our house, I put a wall of banner. I would cut out like Time magazine. I love fonts. I loved like every part <laughs> of media back then, and I was just really lucky. I had parents who were in that industry, so I don't know whether it came from them or or something else, but I just know that I always wanted to be a writer and journalist in particular. Yeah. I've written books, but it they're all they're all from a journalistic perspective. They're yeah. mostly nonfiction journalism. So, what what's interesting about that? Sometimes when you grow up, you don't know what you want to be, and you become that at forty or fifty. It can be dangerous knowing what you want to be at ten when that career is not necessarily available to you because of who you are. And generations of journalists of color and women and non-binary people, trans people, have often been frustrated in that their paths because of that. Um, my mom had frustrations being a woman of her generation of journalists. She had to leave the Tribune because they wouldn't allow her to do serious journalism. Yeah. So I saw that she created her own path. Mm. Um, and, my, and my stepfather, because he was a cisgender straight white man, fit white, right into the Tribune, although he didn't play the game, so he didn't move up like a lot of other guys. But um, So I saw multiple paths in front of me, but was still frustrated when I graduated college knowing um, that my path was really limited. That is um, an awareness that um, I cannot say I had when I graduated college about my career, uh, which is tech. And similarly, I find myself uh, perhaps not uh, isolated, uh, working with a lot of uh, cis white males. Um, and like, I, I love that you had that awareness because it sounds like you were ready to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, well, what happened in college was I, I was told by my professors that my path would be limited because I was openly gay. And, and and I always say it was more in a paternalistic way rather than a mean way, although, and I didn't really even take it as a mean way. I, I felt like they were just being honest. Mm -hmm. A lot of openly gay journalists in the country, not they didn't know any. I later found out there were a handful that were in mainstream outlets. One of them was Randy Schiltz, who wrote some really groundbreaking books before he died of AIDS. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know. And so I don't say this lightly. I mean, I attempted suicide in my sophomore year and I, when it was not successful and I came out of that, one of the things I said to myself was there's no way I'm going to let the outside world define me or tell me what path I can take. If I have to be a typesetter or whatever I need to be the rest of my life, I can still write and mm -hmm. nobody can stop that. It's a, it's the best thing about being a writer is that you don't need 
you're not like a doctor and you're a surgeon and you can't be a surgeon. You know, I, <laughs> I can write in the, you know, like it's more like being a musician. You can write and sing and do all those things, even if no, no one ever hears you or pays a nickel for your music. And I felt like that was a shift in my psychological state back then was, you know, well, I can be what I want to be and I can do these other things because I have other skills. And if nobody ever hires me as a journalist, I'll still be okay. So once I graduated, my mother actually had heard about a job at Gay Life newspaper, and I really just never looked back. I got that job at a gay newspaper in the city of Chicago in 1984 and could not have been plopped into a better time in the universe for wanting to be a journalist, being put on the front lines of a war, HIV AIDS, which is this week, marking its 40th anniversary of the first diagnosis. Here I started three years into the HIV AIDS epidemic, and it's been certainly one of the most critical stories I've ever covered. So I could not have been more fortunate to have been exactly at that moment in time at the right time. Like 10 years earlier, no. Um, I was able to, even though it wasn't good paying, I still was able to find a job and do that work for the for the rest of my life. That is that is really beautiful. And, and that is a really strong story. And I'm glad you came out of uh, that depression and situation and, and came out swinging and winning. And I am really happy about that. Um, and obviously you started covering more LGBTQ stories, um, which I'm sure you were extremely proud about. And at the same time, did you ever feel like were you pigeonholed uh, in some ways? You know, I didn't, I know that a lot of people did care that worked for us. Some of them used fake names because it could have hurt their career. Mm. Um, but I always, I was, I, I have to say that every minute of every day, I was so busy doing the work that I never worried that I would run out of work at all so that I'd have to look for something else, right? Mm. Like, again, if I had to do something on the side in order to write about and document the community, um, I just never, ever worried about its impact because I knew I would never have fit in at the Tribune. My stepfather told me I'd never fit at the Tribune. He, I mean, again, in a loving way, um, he's right. I would have left within a couple of years and probably left the profession. Almost mm. everybody I graduated college with with journalism degrees ended up out of the profession within a decade. Wow. But I was able to, because I was making my own way, and you know, after that first year at Gay Life, I co-founded Windy City Times. Then I co-founded Outlines. I left Windy City Times because my co-founder was whacked. <laughs> and then I started all these other papers like, you know, Black Lines on La Vida. Um, so they all kind of were parallel and sister papers. And so there was always something keeping me busy. I'm, I, you know, I'm multiple track brain here. And if I have multiple things going on, I'm happy. I would have never fit in a mainstream constraints. So I never even felt like I was hurting my career. Uh, I knew I was, but I didn't care, I guess, because I knew I wouldn't have fit in to that, yes. that environment. Perfect. That is a really awesome way to see in things. Um, and um, as you covered this stories, do you, um, well, let me ask before we close out the chapter of like you growing up, is like, do you remember any specific story growing up that was maybe the most impactful, whether it was to your classmates or to your teachers and that like really give you like that, yes, I can do this type of uh, passion? story I wrote or a story I wrote? Yeah, yeah or either, either, I guess either or, yeah. I have to say that Ms. Magazine was a big inspiration to me as a kid. Okay. Knowing that there could possibly be like a world of feminist journalism was really important. I didn't know about the gay press then. It did exist when I was growing up. I just didn't know it was there. But I knew about Ms. Magazine and I read that as a, as a young woman in my teens. 
So that really impacted me. Um, I got to go to Ms. Magazine offices in the late 80s just to visit um, and just was in awe of what they had accomplished and what they were up against. It's gone through many changes over the years, but in the 1970s, it was really pivotal for a feminist journalist to know, even if you may not get a job there, that some people had a job writing about feminism. Um, and so that was an inspiration. In terms of stories that impacted me, I mean, in the 80s, there were thousands of them, but um, I, the March on Washington for lesbian and gay rights in 1987, which was the second March on Washington for gay rights, um, but huge, like a million people were there and there were so many different parallel stories going on. And, and my whole team from Outlines newspaper was there and, and it was an unbelievable, uh, inspiring event to cover, be mm -hmm. part of, and then come back to Chicago and see how it had its ripple effects throughout communities in, in this region, but also across the country. People came back home inspired and created organizations. I mean, this was, you know, the front line was people living with HIV AIDS and a lot of celebrities were like Whoopi Goldberg was uh, pushing a friend of hers who, who was very ill with AIDS. This this march and all of the this tangential events of it were an unbelievable um, moment in time to have been able to cover. Um, there were uh, arrests at the Supreme Court uh, after their decision on sodomy laws. Um, at that point, they were keeping them legal. So it was really uh, a moment that if anybody needed energy to keep them going, that march kind of injected it into your veins. Beautiful. Amazing. Um, how did you think, we, you, you, I know you talk a lot about um, printed media and how, how in, in love in some ways you were as a, as a girl with, with that, but how do you think from your perspective, um, the internet and digital media has changed things and the paradigms paradigms of who writes and who reads. Yeah, I mean, there is a, this is an incredible Gutenberg level shift that we have seen in the last 30 years, really starting in the mid 1990s, but especially this century, in how media is produced and consumed. In 1984, we were putting out a weekly gay newspaper. 20 years prior to that, it might not have been possible because what happened was really starting in the 1950s, 60s, as, as computers started to be more available and more accessible financially. People were able to start using the tools to create their own media. So there was a surge in media in the 1960s and 70s, print media, uh, and, and radio broadcasting and you know sub-channel broadcasting and all that kind of stuff happening. But primarily in the print media space, there were all these alternative papers, gay papers, black press, all these were starting to thrive in the 60s and 70s because the tools became cheaper to produce your own outlets. So that shift was really critical, and a lot of uh, gay press was done on the training grounds of alt media and other places. And then um, really starting in the mid-90s, the Internet comes along, and, and we went online. We were actually one of the first papers in the country to go online fully because we were free anyway. We were free in print. So Which one? Oh, the Windy City Times? Times and out, well, really outlines. Okay, outlines. Okay. Um, and we weren't afraid of it all. People were like, you're afraid of giving um, We give it away free anyway. So I think the free press actually was less intimidated by the Internet because I was excited because we were always never having enough room for everything we wanted to print. So the oh. Internet allowed us to put more on it. But by the early 2000s, when the technology became even better, especially for photos and video and audio, again, we felt like free. We felt like, oh, my God, we have more stuff we can do online. Um, and a lot of other companies were much slower to adapt. And, of course, that's why Craigslist and other things cannibalized the, the 
classifieds industry and hurt mainstream media. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. And um, the community media, I think, was adapting more quickly. I love the, the, the there's no net neutrality, so, so to speak, but there is this neutral platform where anybody can access it, right? As long as you can get to a library and get on a, you can create a Substack column, you can create a website, you can do whatever you want. I think we still need curated media because there is too much noise. There's millions and millions of stories that are produced every day, much of it not fact-based. Um, and so people, we still need editors. We still need journalists um, as part of that ecosystem. But we also do need the storytellers and the podcasters and everybody else that's producing content. I'm very much still an evangelist for community and ethnic media because we tell the stories from the, you know, we don't start at zero in terms of knowledge of our communities. We have, um, we have our biases. Everybody does. Every single journalist has a bias. They need to own that and, and work to fight against that when it, when it matters. But we, we have a chance with this technology to be on a level playing field with massive multi-billion dollar media. Um, we can scoop them. We can do better stories. We can do stories that feed up to them. Um, so I do think that this playing field is not quite level, but it's more level. What's destroying it is the Google and Facebook monopolies on digital advertising. Um, because as you move to an online environment, you know, somebody anywhere in the world can take over that technology and hurt a local entity in Chicago or anywhere. So we have to do better at um, forcing government and uh, corporate America to do a, um, a more equitable job in terms of supporting and advertising through authentic community media. Um, it's better for business. It's harder to do, but it is the right thing to do. And a lot of the work I feel like I'm doing now with the Chicago Independent Media Alliance and other things is to show that is good for business. And we want to meet you halfway to make it easier to do that. Beautiful. Thank you. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually, I actually do work for Instagram on the ads team. So <laughs> I am here to hear you actually. Yeah. Well, you know, because here's the thing. When Maytag exists in an in a environment where their competitors can do the exact same thing with a push of a button. And so I'm going to reach, you know, 20 to 40 year old black people that are looking for uh, washing machines. What makes you stand out is when you partner with authentic um, community ethnic media so that you partner with black owned media. If you're trying to reach those people, you get a more authentic and a loyal base. And that's what I learned from the gay community. Yeah, anybody can advertise vodka. But if you're a brand that also sponsors events and, and puts ads in, in gay media and, you, you know, all these other things that you do you are going to build a brand loyalty uh, that can last decades. Um, you know, I know brand, like Absolute is a perfect example of a vodka that early on got um, the importance of the gay community and the gay market, and they did it deep. They advertised in gay media. They sponsored gay events, not just gay pride, but other events throughout the year. They had a huge engagement effort that was authentic and through the community. They hired gay agencies to do it and gay agencies that were from the community, not just exploiting the community. You know, there's a right way to do this and certainly stumbles along the way. But brands that do it through that kind of authenticity, not just the social media influencer of the day, but rather someone who has deep roots in their communities, find that the loyalty is there. It is a lot harder. We are worse than feral cats. You know, some of them don't even have good media kits or know who they reach themselves. Yeah. So we know that there is work to do to meet the brands halfway um, to make it easier to work with us. Maybe even use the ad rep for a model where an agency represents us to the brands. 
that works in some you know places that has been a, a better way to do it um, but we definitely know that there needs to be pressure put on because it is just easier to push a button and say I'm reaching this type of audience and it just doesn't last because your com competition could do that too absolutely I like how um, you've built many uh, newspapers or uh, media outlets and and really engage the community um, You've share, you're sharing a little bit, I think, what you're sharing is about how to create a brand that stands out, but is also a posit has positive impact in the community. What other things do you do as you build these media outlets in order to make this brand, like you were talking about, saying that it's authentic, it's community-based, and it partners with the community instead of taking advantage of it? Well, from... From the media side of that, so the Chicago yeah. Reader has its own baggage and history, right? It was always a predominantly white run owned outlet. Um, we inherited a staff that was all but one person was white. So the, the, the media outlet itself needed to do a lot of work internally. And I, I would say that media in general is a reflection of the racism and sexism of society. And the Reader was no different than that. So we have built now an organization that is co-led by women. So my co-publisher, Karen Hawkins, we are both queer women. She is African-American. I'm white. Um, we have about 30% of our staff now is people of color. About 30% is also LGBTQ identified. And we're just trying to build a diverse staff. We're trying to diversify our vendor base so that the vendors we use are diverse. Um, we also are, uh, we diversified our distribution. We expanded our distribution into more areas of the city of Chicago. We have nearly 1,200 locations. And we diversified our freelancer base and are continuing to do so. So that the freelancers writing about criminal justice reform include people um, who are from communities who are disproportionately policed, right? So you can't parachute in, which is what the media, mainstream media especially, is, is known for, parachuting into a story. You don't get as good a story. Um, and you rely on actually the local media on the ground, which I have been called so many times by mainstream journalists over the years to find gay people to talk to. It's so frustrating. Um, but that's what happens when you parachute in. You don't have your own quote unquote Rolodex of people to contact. So you contact the media that does that work. Um, it's just, it's a weird circle that happens. Um, and we have to break out of that. And it's not easy. Um, but so then when brands work with communities, the same thing should hold true. It's like, well, how, what are your vendors? You know, who do you use? Who do you spend money in? Are they community and ethnic media? And they are they owned by the community? So Univision is not owned. It's owned by, a you know, corporate overlords. Um, it's not owned by community. So is there, are there Latino media like La Raza or Cicero Independiente that are more authentic and community-based? So working with, um, it's not just about who they reach. It is who controls them that is also important to look at. I don't mean don't, you know, go to iHeart radio stations that aren't African-American focused. That's, that makes sense. But don't leave out African-American owned media outlets in the meantime, or mm -hmm. you can put ads on Bravo TV to reach the gays. But can you also put them in gay media because you're going to build a different sense of loyalty? Mm, totally. I like all, I, I like all of those steps. Um, it, there's so much awareness into community building that you have. Um, it does, did that come from like the years of really trying to build something? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm from Chicago, so that has taught me a lot. I, I feel like Chicago is like, it is my backyard, right? 
I, my partner has been with me 27 years in part because I know all the alleys and the shortcuts and, and I know <laughs> how to get from one place to another. And what happened when I took over at the reader two and a half years ago is that I knew what I wanted to do in community media, but Windy City Times was a smaller platform. So as soon as I took over at the reader, I'm like, okay, this is my shot. This is my shot to get meetings with funders, to get meetings with corporations, and to try to bring community and ethnic media together. Nice. So within six months of, of taking over at the reader, even though it's been a very heavy lift, I knew that we also had an opportunity and we formed the Chicago Independent Media Alliance, hired Yasmin Dominguez, a, a terrific young journalist, to coordinate it and just run, go for it. And we couldn't have started it at a better time because, of course, eight or nine months later, COVID hit. <laughs> and we did an emergency fundraiser that infused $160,000 into 43 of our members. Um, I mean, we had a, a, just like a perfect ramp of timing. To sustain it, we need more. Obviously, we need more support. We need especially foundation and corporate support to get it fully staffed and, and working and helping our, our members. Um, but I, my, I think my sense of community is that my very first newspaper was for my family. And then it expanded to my neighbors. And it, I think its peak circulation was around 150, right? So, but it was covering, it was, if I were to look back at it, it covered tearing down buildings in the neighborhood I was in, so gentrification. I was literally writing about updates on the Vietnam War. Um, I was also writing about when my dog died or my cat had kittens. You know, it was local news at the most local level you could possibly have. But it also understood the sense of the world it was in. And that's what I think community media does best. If you're in Flint, Michigan, and you're a journalist, you're covering the water crisis. Yeah. Then Rachel Maddow at MSNBC picks that up and amplifies it. Well, she needs those local journalists. John Oliver needs those local journalists. Trevor Noah needs those local journalists to start the story there and push it up the hill to MSNBC or Comedy Central, right? Um, and I've always felt that way. And um, I, I know that there are stories that aren't percolating up. And our goal is to try to give resources to these media outlets so that they can further amplify the work they do. And we also partner with some of them to put their stories in the reader, which has 56,000 copies. Um, and a larger uh, electronic footprint than some of these smaller outlets so that they also get amplified that way too. Nice, beautiful. I know um, there are, uh, you, we wanted to talk about a little bit about how uh, media, there, you said there's stories that are not being amplified, right? And, and media is definitely like brutal on uh, women and marginalized community. Um, can you talk a little bit about the things that are not being said and sh perhaps should be more in the news? And then how do we continue to shed light into the stories perhaps? Yeah. I mean, here's, here's what I learned in the 1980s covering HIV AIDS and the gay community in Chicago when there were with the hugely vibrant mainstream media ecosystem here, much larger than today. They would once in a while cover gay issues. And this is like early to mid eighties but almost always through a filtered lens of either stereotyping or um, like, ooh, the other. They were othering. And the stereotypes sometimes were horrible, you know, like all gays are pedophiles or gays are deserving of HIV AIDS, whereas hemophiliacs are innocent victims. I mean, the words innocent victims were used a lot. And when you look at how COVID has been covered um, now, today, flash forward, you see a lot of that like judgment of who's getting COVID. Well, you know, uh, overweight people or people who smoke or people who this or people who that. Instead of looking like at the underlying social 
implications of lack of health, lack of adequate health care. Community media knows that and gets that and, and looks and connects systems at the ground level. So, okay, there's not a hospital within 10 miles. There's not healthy food within 10 miles. There, there's The COVID tests are in the suburbs. Why not at McCormick Place or uh, Comiskey Park, right? Like they look at the ground level and, and, and don't just um, simplify and stereotype communities so that, and, and also obviously provide resources. So if you, if, if you, you know, here's rides are being taken from this church to this testing site or whatever it might be. So they're ground level helping their communities and also dissecting their communities when necessary, when there's a bad thing happening. Some of the hardest stuff I've ever covered in the gay community is when there are scandals and when there's meth addiction that causes corruption in an agency or when there are serial killers who we know are internalizing their own homophobia and so therefore are likely gay men killing gay men because of uh, some social pressure. So I've covered a lot of scandals in our community, including almost every agency in our community has gone through some upheaval and some ouster of an executive director. And that's what community media can do really well. A few years ago, the Tribune did this kind of um, hagiography of the executive director of, of an agency. During the window of time, we were writing about all the scandals at that agency. <laughs> and I called the Tribune editor and I said, you know, a simple Google search by your reporter would have showed this executive director's days are numbered because there was just horrendous scandal after scandal. We've been covering for about 14 months. Yeah. And uh, he was ousted uh, very quickly after. And the Tribune looked foolish to have run this, you know, kiss ass profile <laughs> of this of this ED. So I'm just saying that community media, sometimes that's hard to do. It is always hard to do when you're yeah. covering your, it's like a small town in a big city. And, um, you know, you have to just know that your own reputation matters more. And if you're seen as covering up, um, you might as well get out of the profession. Absolutely. I definitely want to talk about what's happening with media in Chicago in a second, but I wonder if you have any opinions about younger generation um, reading news uh, and generally like uh, the fact that, um, you know, like I don't remember the last, the last time I've grabbed a news, a physical newspaper, but I know sometimes I miss it. And so I go back and try to do that. Um, is there a tr is <laughs> what I what I really want to ask is like are we doomed? <laughs> well, let me are, just say, I'm, are I'm, we? I'm neutral to the platform people read news in, right? Okay. Wherever they get it, they get it. Right. I think the generation actually has likely reads more news than any prior generation ever. Okay, they may not call it news; they may mm -hmm. see it through a Facebook link or a Twitter link. The problem is a lot of it is unfiltered and isn't really news. It's it's you know, right-wing you know, propaganda, it's opinions because CNN especially is uh, just abusive of the, the line between opinion and news. They hire these former political people to be on news shows. It's horrible, right? So the news business has, has created a lot of this fog. Um, but in general, I'm neutral to where people get the reader. Probably more people read our stories online every month than the copies that we print. Um, but I do know there's a hugely loyal print audience still. Someday, I don't know when that day is, it's likely to be online only. And as long as we can still afford um, the, the team and create the same journalism, I think it's just as important work. Um, I think what print does is provide a space for people who are not as electronically connected, electronically savvy, or they're burned out on electronic 
Um, I do think when you read or see an ad or read an article in physical form, you probably remember that better because of the noise online and ads and distractions and on your phone especially. I don't think things stick as well um, uh, in general. So I do think we need a, you know, we still have albums, right? We, literally, we have vinyl albums and yeah. we have a way you can get something on Pandora. So yeah. I think that there'll be a range of ways that people read and, and absorb the news. Um, but it is shifting and nobody in this industry can tell you where it's going. Mm. Um, I do have to say, I know that there's this loyal print following. I know that we will be print as long as it makes sense financially. When I can say one day that I'm not in the dead tree business, I would be a happy person. Yeah. Um, we cannot survive right now in that total shift. So it's not going to be in the near future, but, um, we are free, right? So wherever people get us, we're happy that they receive us. Um, and we do need to figure out new models to fund that journalism, which is why the reader is turning into a, a nonprofit. We have our 501c3 status. We'll be fully nonprofit by the end of the year. We want to have a wide range of, uh, revenue streams. We're certainly still going to have advertising and digital advertising and branded content. And we're also going to have, we have events, our first in-person event back is uh, coming in end of July. And we'll have donors and foundations and corporate money. We want to make sure we don't have any single point failure in the revenue side. That's, uh, that's amazing. Um, and it also sounds uh, like a lot of work to, you know, like it's, like you said, it's not as convenient as click of a button, push an ad. Um, and so I, I, I applaud you for that work. Um, tell us about uh, the current fundraising you're doing um, so that people know where to find it and then can support uh, the reader and other news outlet or new media outlets in Chicago. Sure. So the Reader's uh, Chicago Independent Media Alliance project uh, through June 11th has a website called SaveChicagoMedia.org. It actually is up year round now, but this campaign ends uh, June 11th where we have matching dollars from foundations. So if anybody gives to an individual outlet, that money is matched 100%. And then if they, they also have a button they can push, and if they give $100, it'll get split evenly among everybody or $10 or whatever they want. So we're at about $21,000 right now. Our goal is to try to get to at least 40 or 50, and then that most of that will get matched. Um, another thing that I'm part of is uh, Windy City Times put together a book of covers. We've got hundreds and hundreds of images of covers of Windy City Times, outlines, black lines, on Levita, night lines. And um, if people go to WindyCityTimes.com under the donate button, they can buy the book only through June because we're only printing as many as we get ordered and then it's done. <laughs> um, we're not going to hold on to a lot of inventory. So that was a really fun project because, you know, it has covers going back to 1985 and each cover feels like a moment in history um, of what was going on that that time period in Chicago. So I love looking at it because it reminds me of all the, the stories, the good and the bad of what was happening that year. Nice. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Um, let's see. Uh, let's go into um, a little bit of uh, your role as a woman in leadership. And, and you talked about it. Um, we touched base a little bit about it when we started talking about your career and how you were not, um, I guess, welcome into traditional media outlets. Once you started building your own outlet, are there a few lessons that you can recall or think about um, as a woman in leadership that you had to learn? Um, and yeah, let's start, let's start there and see where yeah. it goes. Yeah, I mean, I made a ton of mistakes. Um, <laughs> first one was when yeah. I did Windy City Times to start outlines, 
I did not immediately claim the title of publisher, which I was, right? And and there was nobody else's name above mine on the masthead. I mean, it was my baby, but I had this hesitancy about claiming that title. Oh, wow. And um, so claiming the title, I think, is one lesson. I certainly never got paid well, but I was the boss, so that was my own fault. Um, and uh, I also took on debt, personal debt, for the work that I love, which I have finally paid off decades later um, this year because I sold my house. So I basically sold my house and paid off the debt that I did to do what I love. I don't regret it, like, I, but I don't advise it, right? It's already bad enough when you don't get paid a lot, but also to then go in debt significantly for these things, it's it's hard. I, I never had any mentor in the business side of what I do. Mm-hmm. I had journalism mentors and, and my parents were both in that profession, but I really had to learn the business side on the job. And I would say I'm still learning 37 years later, a lot of the business side. Um, and then the thing I think I'm weakest in is people management, right? Like I just want to do the work and I can do that in 80 hours a week. And I don't, I don't really look at the clock in terms of, um, Oh, I'm at 40 hours. I got to go. And I, and I'm, and I ran Witty city times and the outlines. We just all just did the work, right? I wasn't used to that kind of check in the clock think. And when I took over the reader, which is a much larger entity with 30, so, 30 or so staff, um, it was a big adjustment to see how many different types of people work in organizations. And, um, you know, my people management skills just never really had to be that challenged or tested. When you're in this kind of community space, you're feeling all in it together. There's just a different sense when it's more like a business. And it, and the reader, it's kind of a mix of that. So um, the reason, so I was, I was brought in as publisher, but last year, I asked and brought in and urged Karen Hawkins to come on up as co-publisher. And I think that has created a much better model, a shared leadership model, because she has her strengths in terms of, you know, the human side of it. Um, And I'm more of the, you know, business focus and external side of it um, and feel that pressure in terms of saving it on the financial stuff more so. So we complement each other well. So I think learning how to share leadership, um, even though I've always had my name at the top and been the leader, I've always felt like it was just a team. And I think the most skills I learned in my whole life was playing team sports. And I and Title IX was one of the most important legislative things in my whole life. Title IX came around right when I was around eight or nine years old. So I was able to go into Little League. I played, yes. I passed as a boy and played in Little League. And then I, I played team sports until I was 40 years old soccer, softball, every one of those experiences leads you to feel like you're on a team and you're not leading that team. Mm-hmm. And so I was treated things I was doing that way. So I forget that I'm the boss. So I forget that when I email somebody, there's a different power given to that mm-hmm. than if it's their colleague. Mm-hmm. And I'm still learning that. Like, like if I say something, it's the word of the goddess, right? And I don't see it that way. I send it like, oh, I'm, I don't, I don't, that doesn't sound like a good idea. When the boss says that, that's much heavier weighted than if your colleague says it or someone under you says it. Yeah. And so I'm still learning that because it, when you say times, we all just called each other out on whatever. <laughs> like we were just, I felt we all felt like we were equal. I was the lowest paid employee. I worked the longest hours, you know, whatever it was, I had to go buy toilet paper and paper towels at the store. I would do it or deliver the paper, right? We were all in the boat. Yeah. Equals rowing. at The reader, I'm not saying we're all not in the same boat, but- I'm seen in this leadership role. And a lot of these people haven't worked with me very long. So I'm learning that I've got to remember who I am to them 
and and not I'm not just on equal playing field with them in some people's minds other people's minds sure but uh so I'm learning a whole lot just in the last couple years uh and it's things that I you know long term uh you know I I'm almost 60 (laughs) I don't know how much you could change at this age (laughs) but I'm, I'm trying to learn what advice would you give uh, your younger self based on this lesson? If there's one that you had to pick, well, like I said, I, I mean, while I would do things a lot differently, I don't have any regrets um, in terms of what I did. Meaning, I did what I had to do in the moment. Um, I think maybe build a thicker skin sooner. Mm-hmm. But I do have to say, if social media had existed in the '80s, I would never have stayed as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, but younger journalists have to face in terms of external criticism um, and attacks, especially women journalists and people of color journalists, anybody who's different, queer, et cetera, journalists. And I'm sure in the tech industry, I hear nightmares all the time about women in tech being um, uh, stalked and harassed. I This environment is totally new world. Uh, what young people are growing up in right now, distress of social acceptance and peer pressure that is amplified by the online world is unbelievable. I felt enough of that just in high school. I can't imagine high school was expanded to the social media universe. Yeah. And it's, so it's the same in careers that are more public facing like tech and journalism. Um, those two professions have been really the, the people who are not cisgender white men are facing just an unbelievable onslaught of attacks. And, uh, it's going to be hard to keep people in these professions, not just because of the internal struggles, which were always bad enough, internal at the institutions, I mean. Um, I think these external um, pressures and uh, social media in particular are creating a, a, ton, a ton of pressure um, and causing a crisis in confidence, a crisis in, in careers. What do I do that I don't, so I cannot be this magnet for this kind of hate? Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of um, awareness as a parent, I can say that I bring into giving my kids access to the world um, and and calcul- calibrating whether each one of them can handle it yeah. on their, you know, state and responsibility level and awareness and confidence and all that good stuff. So I completely understand. Yeah, I'm 58 years old and I'm, I'm paying attention. <laughs> into likes on um, social media of people I don't even know. Like, oh, I can't even imagine if I was 14 <laughs> or, or whatever. I mean, really, I the, we're changing people's brains. There's Our animal brains are being distorted. The epigenetics are going out the roof in terms of changing who we are in our DNA and RNA. We're, we're going to be different creatures in a few decades. That is going to be exciting to, to, to see, I guess, uh, or hear. Uh, we may go completely on digital, like analog. Uh, so <laughs> we'll see. Um, all right. Let me um, see if... Uh, what do you uh, do for fun uh, beyond playing sports? Um, and I know you spend a lot of time writing. <laughs> Is there anything else that you do for fun? I really miss team sports. Like, okay. I, I stopped at 40 because I was worried about, you know, my I played soccer goalie. I'm very mm-hmm. but I played soccer goalie indoors for indoor soccer and um, softball. And I was very much worried about um, my mom had rheumatoid arthritis really bad near the end of her life. And I was like, I don't want to keep damaging my hands because of writing. So I miss that a lot. And, and COVID has caused me, because I, I used to be, 
you know, three, four events a day. I mean, I was out all the time and COVID just shut that all down. And my partner's been gone a year and a half in Ohio with her mom. So she hasn't been home since the of 2020. Um, so normally we might, you know, hang out with friends and things like that. But my sister and I live together with our dad. So my sister and I have really taken to walking. And of all things, I haven't picked up a tennis racket in 40 years. She and I, we moved to Portage Park and we went and played tennis this weekend over Portage Park. And we're like, that was really cool. Um, so I think I'm gonna we're gonna get back to doing at least that. But I do miss the camaraderie of team sports, the athletic part of team sports. I don't miss the injuries <laughs> and the ramifications <laughs> on my body. But um, uh, so I I do think that I'm really lucky that the thing that I love to do is what some people do as a hobby nice. or as a side gig. So I never feel like the work I'm doing is real work. I feel like I'm luckiest person in the world to still be doing journalism to be writing books on my own, out of my own control, unbossed, right? Yes. So, <laughs> unbossed. <laughs> Amazing. All right, let's uh, keep you going with the last few other questions, and then we are almost at time, so I'm going to let you go here soon. But uh, what is a book you've gifted the most or that you recommend or something that you've read recently that um, you can share with us? Well, I, was, I led a book group last week on The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. She used a lot of Windy City Times research and interviewed myself and others about the 1980s gay community for that book. So The Great Believers, I definitely recommend. Um, and I also recommend a nonfiction book, um, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks um, by Rebecca Skloot. Um, it is one of my favorite books of all time because it is a true journalism like hero story, right? She pursued this book on her own dime for years, was, was had bad publisher experiences, did all this stuff, and she got that book out into the world. It was converted into a book uh, movie by, by Oprah. And this, not only that, but as a journalist, she also understood her responsibility to the people she was telling stories about. Mm. And the money from that book has gone to help educate the next generations of the Lacks family it is one of the most profound stories in a book and about a book mm. and in the journalism space that I'm in that I've ever seen. It's, it's my favorite book um, to, to talk about and, and proselytize about. And as an example to how journalists can get things right. Oh, beautiful. I'm, I haven't read it, but I, I will read it and definitely email you about it. Cause I'm excited. Yeah. You make it sound really good. Uh, what is a book you have? Well, you've written books, but are you, what is it your next book that you would write? Um, you know, I just, I had written, one of my most recent books was on Barbara Giddings and her, I worked on it with her widow, Kayla Hoosen. Kay had had a stroke during the working of the book five years ago, but yet we were able to get it out. And Kay just passed away last week. And it was the honor of my life to do that book and to do some of the other biographies I've done. I have a lot of books in my mind that I want to do. Um, at some point I want to do a story about my trajectory, but also how it paralleled my mother's trajectory from the prior generation, like mm. how she, the work she did in the pioneering journals before her led to the work that I was able to do. I don't know what it is yet. Um, so I, I'm not sure how to, to even start it, but um, I think the, the columns that I'm doing on Substack right now are part of that process of getting stories out. Um, and then the Winnie City Times book of covers is just out next week. So that was a real labor of love as well to do. That's beautiful. Um, tell us uh, where the audience can find you. Um, you just mentioned the Substack sub column. Tell us about it. Um, and if they need to get in touch with you, how would you like to be reached? So I'm on Twitter at Tracy Babe WCMG. I'm on LinkedIn. 
Bame. Um, there's only one other Tracy Bame I've ever found, so you should be able to find me. Um, she's not in Chicago. Um, I'm on uh, Facebook, uh, although I'm at that darn friends limit almost. And um, also on Substack, I, it's under Witty City Times. Um, I'm reachable pretty much through a lot of channels, but messaging through social media is probably the best way. Great, Tracy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thank you for the hard work and the thoughtful work that you put into journalism in the community in Chicago. Thank you, Marina. I'd love to continue the dialogue since you're Chicagoan and, and at Instagram. We could do a lot of fun stuff together. So let's, keep it going. Let, let's do it. I'll contact you soon. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Bye.